welcome to the pod- podcast of European Society of uh, Anesthesiology and Intensive Care. Uh, my name is Daniela Godoroja, Diarto, I'm from Romania, and I will host uh, the session um, Extreme and Obesity from the European Society of uh, Perioperative Care of Obese Patients. I'm delighted to introduce uh, my colleague, Mike Markerson, uh, from Chichester, United Kingdom, and he will speak uh, today about the obese patient with uh, and uh, the uh, ASA4 in obese patient. Hello, Mike. How are you? Hello, Daniela. I'm good. What would you like to know? So uh, I would like to know what are what is most uh, what are the most common causes for uh, the pathology for um, causing the mortality of the uh, obese patients that will be anesthetized. Well, what we're going to talk about tomorrow is a, a whole variety of things, but I'd say in answer to that question, it's cardiac. The thing that ultimately mm-hmm. puts the morbidly obese patients, the high risk ones, over the edge, it's it's heart failure, and there's a whole multitude of reasons for that. That's the final common pathway when things start to go wrong, particularly if they get a second hit after their initial surgeries. And that's the thing you're always asking yourself when you see these patients, will they survive a, com- survive a complication? If you're doing elective surgery, if it's emergency surgery, you have no choice, you have to push on. And we can talk there about how we change our techniques. So it should be very interesting, your talk. But you can uh, tell us a little bit about the key question that uh, you follow uh, or you recommend other anesthetists to follow uh, when uh, to identify preoperatively the highest, uh, uh, okay. the highest risk patients. Sure, sure. I think in elective surgery, where you've got the opportunity to see patients in the, in the pre-assessment clinics and, and optimize them, I think the key questions all relate to exercise tolerance and uh, getting a good feel for whether or not someone can get up a flight of stairs. If someone goes up a flight of stairs without stopping, I feel pretty relaxed. If they laugh at me when I say, can you climb a flight of stairs, I'm getting very nervous. And then you follow on that with some questions around positioning posture and the ability to, an orthopnea, the ability to lie flat. Because the real worrying patients for me the morbidly obese guys are the ones who can't lie flat um, and you ask them how they sleep and they tell you I sleep in a chair now that for me is a, an absolute red flag those are the really bad hearts uh, they're the ones that you have to really worry about and if you have to put someone off to sleep in a 45 degree head up position because they can't lie flat you can bet your bottom dollar you'll have to wake them up sitting bolt upright or they'll never spit the tube out uh, and they won't do well uh, so so questions around posture, around exercise tolerance, digging down to what they can really manage. Now, of course, these guys have all got bad backs and they've got bad knees. And I say guys because it's mostly men who I'm m- more worried about. Uh, they, they, the mortality, uh, perioperative mortality in obese patients coming from bariatrics particularly is very much focused into the males rather than the females. And it's the big ones. It's once you're over 170 kilograms, that, that's when you get the, the, the high comorbidity patients who have all the problems. And we'll talk about that tomorrow. So just because you said 170 kilograms. So we have a patient with BMI of 50, okay? Imagine that we have a patient, and what is your difference, your changing in your approach of these patients, depending on they have or no comorbidities associated. So you change, what is your advice about this? Uh, we are talking about ASA 2 and 3. 
or three? I don't really change very much with the ASA twos and threes. You know, we'll talk again a little bit tomorrow about the ASA status guidance, which states that anybody with a BMI of more than 40 is ASA three, because that really is a bit of a nonsense. What I, what I want to do is is be able to identify which patients are high risk and low risk. So actually, if they're fit and they're well and they're young and they go swimming, but they have a BMI of 70, we've had several of those girls who they're ASA one. There's nothing wrong with them. And so you treat them accordingly, you give them a standard sort of anaesthetic, they'll tolerate stuff. It's the ones who are big and old, who've had lots and lots of years to suffer and develop the comorbidities associated with uh, severe obesity that are the patients who are going to be the ones with the dodgy hearts and the unforgiving ones where if you get things wrong and things start to slip away during the anaesthetic, where you, you can potentially have things spiraling out of control. Okay, thank you very much, Mike. Pleasure. So now uh, I would like I would have the I will have the privilege to introduce my my colleague from Poland from Lodz Poland professor in in hospital from Lodz, uh, Professor Tomasz Gazinczyk. He will talk about uh, obese patients and trauma. Tomasz, welcome. Uh, the, I would like to ask you first. Uh, we know all about the obesity paradox uh, that obese patients are protective for something. Uh, when they they uh, have uh, different challenges, this this uh, concept still valid in the patients with trauma, the obese patients they have trauma. And the second second question related to this is uh, so-called cushion effect and obesity paradox exist. Daniela, thank you very much for this question. It's a very interesting topic, in fact, because. Uh, Uh, previously, uh, there was a su- suggestion that uh, obese patients may have a higher surviving ratio because of some kind of protective effect of fat tissue uh, that can absorb some amount of uh, impact energy during the uh, accident. And also, uh, there were some uh, papers suggesting that uh, Afterwards, the patients with obesity can have a higher surviving ratio because of para- obesity paradox. Okay. However, um, after uh, another investigations, newer papers, uh, it, ac- it appeared that it's not true. Uh, the cushion effect doesn't exist, in fact, because uh, uh, the fat tissue doesn't protect these patients from the impact uh, and doesn't absorb. Uh, energy enough to have uh, in, influence on the outcome. Uh, it's true that uh, the patients, obese patients, may have a little bit higher surviving ratio at the place of accident, but afterwards, when they are admitted to the hospital, their surviving ratio decreases dramatically because of um, comorbidities related to obesity. So um, it may be observed that in small injuries like falls, for example, or not very big accidents, uh, patients with obesity may have a little bit slightly better surviving ratio than non-obese, but, but it's only for rather overweight people. Together with growing obesity, like grade one, grade two, three, And comorbidities, maybe? Uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The mortality ratio increases significantly. So nowadays, there is no proof, absolutely no proof, that something like cushion effect or 
obesity paradox exist in obese trauma patient? Um, it's very interesting, but in fact, uh, what are the challenges? How you behave? You behave different with a patient with trauma that is obese, comparing with non-obese. What are your, the challenges and the, the management? You, com you, your approach is different to the obese, comparing with non-obese patients? Yes and no. Well, um, of course, we follow uh, typical uh, patterns like A, B, C, D, etc. So you should follow them also in obese patients with slight modifications depending on particular parts of this. So for example, with airway, you must be aware of challenges regarding to obese patients. So there are some modifications and uh, need for additional equipment, for example, something like this. Uh, if we talk about breathing, also you have to remember that uh, ventilation of this patient, um, obese patient is a little different than non-obese patients, require that's another s equipment, uh, skills, etc. Uh, the same for uh, circulation. Uh, if you want to uh, do the proper chest compressions, you have to remember about uh, problems that obesity uh, creates with this. Um, disability. Also, uh, neurological examination in these patients is complex and complicated because of obesity. And finally, exposure. Um, you need a special equipment or even uh, you can't send this patient just to nearest hospital that is not equipped with proper CT uh, scan, for example, that is uh, that you can put in this patient, obese patient. Uh, you have to remember about UCG, for example, that is complicated in this patient. So you can't send this patient just to hospital that there is no um, uh, properly uh, uh, equipped personal and, and experienced personnel with, with uh, obese patients. And another very interesting, important thing is uh, um, transferring this patient, moving the patient. Uh, sometimes you need a special team of, of uh, and people. And a lot of people. Yes, to, to help the transfer this patient. And uh, different lifts and um, absolutely, absolutely uh, I mean, lift for obesity mm -hmm. uh, to, to carry the obese patients. Yes. Yeah. And tell us again, continuously, please, if you, if you are kind to, about what are the challenges, what we need to expect about this. Well, These obese patients with trauma, they have yes, suffered yes, trauma. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, well, um, I already mentioned some, some important issues. Uh, first, a training. Uh, a personal dealing with uh, obese patient, trauma patient, must be trained in these specific actions and equipped with proper equipment for airway, for uh, monitoring, like uh, proper uh, uh, ECG, UCG, uh, proper um, uh, CT scans. Uh, so also uh, uh, the facility must be equipped with proper equipment and uh, to deal properly with these patients, uh, it's good to create teams uh, that are skilled in management of obese patients, not only trauma, but generally obese patients. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much, Thomas. Thank um, you very much.
It is my privilege to introduce Professor Luc de Bademaker from uh, University Hospital in Ghent. Uh, and uh, he will talk about uh, obese patients, elderly obese patients. Hello, Luc. Hello, Daniela. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> and first question, because we know 90% of uh, obese patients have different grades, degrees of obstructive apnea. Do you find a link? To, can you uh, tell us about a link, a relationship between obstructive apnea and postoperative delirium? Daniela, what we know about postoperative uh, delirium is that it's uh, involved with uh, chronic uh, sleep disturbances. Nightmares, desaturations at night. We also know that postoperative delirium is linked to increased mortality after surgery and with a cognitive decline in the coming years. And on top of that, a lot of the uh, patients with obstructive sleep apnea have disturbance of their sleep architecture before. Uh, before. Um, and Previous studies demonstrated that there was a link between obstructive sleep apnea and postoperative delirium, particularly in high-risk uh, uh, operations. Uh, we also know that postoperative delirium is uh, involved in factors, intraoperative factors such as hypotension, hypoxemia, overdosage of our um, anesthetics, and hypo hypocapnia. And a recent publication involving large numbers of patients uh, showed that the, this relationship between obstructive sleep apnea and postoperative delirium in older hospitalized patients um, was linked to uh, high risk procedures, but not so much to moderate risk procedures. And one of the possible explanations is probably the high surgical uh, complicated procedures will uh, produce more inflammation, so there's probably a factor neuroinflammation involved. So that's the link, obstructive sleep apnea, postoperative delirium in high risk, uh, difficult surgery such as thoracic and cardiac surgery. Okay, but do you think obesity per se can affect our brain? Good question. The brain regulates obesity in a very complex way. Don't forget our center for orexogenic but also anorexogenic stimuli come from the hypothalamus um, but it is a fact that obesity does change our brain uh, in an indirect way there are indirect effects and the most important indirect uh, effect is the risk of, stro of stroke Ob obese patients correlated with BMI have a more uh, uh, risk of stroke and so do the obstructive sleep apnea patients and as you mentioned they usually go hand in hand the direct effects of obesity on the brain involve Alzheimer's disease and in particular the onset of midlife adiposity clearly uh, increases your risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. Same goes for Parkinson's disease. There are forms of obesity where the obese patients will suffer a depletion of striatal dopamine receptor availability and they will develop Parkinson's disease. And also there's something called obesity-related cognitive impairment. It's probably also linked to neuroinflammation and clearly again midlife adiposity is involved. So those are some of the examples how uh, obesity affects our brain. So bariatric surgery is very good to not become uh, old and obese at the same time. So but because we need to protect our brain at least, correct? 
and weight loss you're absolutely right and weight loss can uh, can reverse uh, some reverse. of these negative effects and i will not do question because we anesthetize patients uh, obese patients and old obese patients so how the monitoring uh, pharmacodynamic monitoring can help and can be useful in an anesthetic when we are talking of the obese uh, elderly patients i think avoiding deep anesthesia is good not only for every patient but maybe in particularly for the obese patient and we, ha we have all our EEG derived monitors uh, most of them do allow us now to use the spectrogram the spectrogram gives extra information and one of the most important things to to uh, observe in general in older people in older populations the total power of the spectrogram will decline by age and you can even distinct watching your spectrogram you can make the difference between a young brain and an old brain and in the obese patients especially those with a vulnerable brain the use of the spectrogram adds extra value and in particularly pay attention uh, to the ratio of the alpha power the, the the power in the alpha band compared to the total power because this ratio is a strong indicator of a vulnerable a vulnerable brain and those are the patients that are likely to develop post-operative uh, delirium um, and there's also um, an important factor the product that you use if you want to use this parameter it is very this change in ratio in alpha power is strongly observed when you are using propofol in sevoflurane unfortunately you have a, a fill-in phenomenon where the alpha band and the delta uh, power merge so that's not that clear the ratio the alpha power is more clear in propofol anesthesia uh, of course it's uh, recommended to give uh, TCI to these patients if they are older and obese patients but also is I think it's good recommendation to have uh, monitoring pharmacodynamic monitoring even if you give anesthesia by sevoflurane so even if you because normally is not yeah. yeah absolutely because let's be honest we do not know everything of the pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic changes in the obese and that's where this type of monitoring can help okay thank you very much Luke. very interesting topic uh, you know, the SIAIC releases monthly uh, podcasts uh, on the uh, SIAIC website and various streaming uh, platforms. We hope you will join us for the next one. <laughs>